Welcome to our spiritual gifts class through Immersion Discipleship School. This is session four called the Ministry Gifts. Now you'll remember in the last couple weeks and sessions we talked about the foundation for spiritual gifts, the source of spiritual gifts, who is the Holy Spirit. We also talked about the substance of spiritual gifts, which is love. And in this session, we're actually transitioning to now focus on the different gifts themselves. We wanted to build a foundation and really characterize the ministry and the flow of how it is that we want to receive and steward the gifts. But now we want to talk about the definitions and descriptions of the gifts themselves. So this is a very important transition as we begin our session today. And what we're gonna do is go over the three different categories of spiritual gifts. Now, depending on where you're from or the teaching that you've received, a lot of times people will go into this kind of a teaching and they'll just take the gifts from the different passages, sort of take them out of their context and talk about them in that way. And I don't wanna do that. I wanna make sure over the next several sessions that we actually look at the passage together, who wrote it, who they wrote it to, and why they wrote it, look at some of the principles that are embedded within that context, and from there we'll take the gifts that are mentioned there and we'll look at them, their definition and description together, and really come to a place of hopefully how we can see whether or not we have those gifts and start to employ them from there. And we're obviously we're going to be focusing on Ephesians chapter 4 called the ministry gifts, but there are three categories, and the first category is called motivational gifts. We find this in Romans chapter 12, and some people refer to these gifts as the gifts of the Father. We're focusing on today the ministry gifts, and those are found in Ephesians chapter 4. Some would call those the gifts of the Son because it says that Jesus gave these gifts. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have what's called the manifestational gifts. These are the gifts of the Spirit. Now, all of these are spiritual gifts, but you'll notice how it specifically says who's giving what to whom, and we'll go through that in more detail as we continue our lessons. But if you have your Bible, or you can follow along, open up to Ephesians chapter 4, and instead of just doing verse 11 through 16 or 13, we're going to start in verse 1 to get kind of a greater context for the conversation that Paul is having to the church at Ephesus about these specific gifts, the ministry gifts. So here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ." As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From him, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, 
according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Amen and amen. Now we know that Paul obviously wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. And what's interesting about the different letters, Paul wrote 13 letters. And this one specifically, scholars would say that Paul knew that this letter was meant to be circulated. What you don't find is the same kind of addresses that are made in some of the other letters. And Ephesus was a very large city, and Paul meant for this to circulate body-wide. Even we know that this letter circulated far and wide, even beyond many of the letters that he had written. And so it's a very important letter, especially as we're addressing the issue of ministry gifts, to think in that way. In the previous chapters, Paul spoke clearly about the power and the privilege of being in Christ and that we have been called into this grace through Jesus Christ. And what, what a great grace that it truly is, the mercy and the love of God in Jesus. In chapter 3, Paul talks about the mystery of God and how in Christ that mystery is now revealed and that God is calling us to be one big family, both Jew and Gentile, that in Christ we have come together, we have been called together, and he's really exhorting them to walk together in unity and love, which is why in chapter four he opens up and he goes on to talking about one baptism, one faith, one Lord. Really all he's talking about there is oneness. It's not about the definitions of those specific words. He's just saying, we are one, we are one, we are one. And this is what Jesus has done. As we look at chapter four, and he exhorts us to walk worthy of the manner of the calling for which we have received in Christ Jesus. He wants us to know how great and marvelous the calling that we have received truly is. And there's a call, a theme towards unity, as I've already said. And part of that in this context, he wants them to understand the call of unity has a lot to do with understanding the governmental gifts that Jesus Christ has left behind for his church. And this is what we come to when we talk about ministry gifts. We're talking about gifts that Jesus himself gave. Jesus actually is the apostle. He is the prophet. He is the evangelist. He is the pastor and teacher. And it's very important that we realize that as Jesus was one man anointed of the Spirit, we know that he was more than a man, but he was a man anointed of the Holy Spirit, possessing all of the gifts, the Spirit without measure, the Bible says, that he was all of these things entirely in totality. And as he ascended, the Bible's saying that he's given gifts to men. As he's given gifts to men, then men become gifts to the body. And these are governmental gifts that he has given in his church that some are apostles, some are prophets, some are evangelists, some are pastors and teachers. You'll notice, and it's important to, to realize this, that some in the body of Christ don't believe that it's a fivefold ministry. They believe it's a fourfold because they, they believe that the grammar would suggest that pastor and teacher are one calling and not just a pastor or a teacher. But the reason that I wanna dissect them in, in a fivefold ministry is because I do actually think there is a calling of a teacher, which we see in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, toward the end of the chapter, you see that as Paul sets up the order of the church, he says, I believe the third category is teachers. And so that is a, an actual separate calling, and we want to identify it as such, and we'll see how that works as we get into it. So the way I want to frame up this conversation is I want to go through the different aspects, five-fold ministry. I want to talk to you about what they are, where they are in scripture or some of the passages that lend themselves to helping us understand what that calling is. 
And then hopefully I can also help to describe that a little bit in a way where you might gravitate towards one or the other. Because there's two things that are true. Number one, there are some of us in the body of Christ have received one of these gifts. That, that, that would be a factual thing. Some are apostles or prophets. Not everybody in the body of Christ has what I would consider this to be a governmental calling, the mantle, so to speak. They haven't received that in fullness. There are some that have that. Not all, but some. But I would say that Paul didn't write this letter just to leaders. He wrote this letter to the church. And so when he talks about grace has been given, and he's really referencing to all, I believe that every person in the body of Christ has a leaning toward one of these different gifts. And so as we go through them, what I want you to do is search your heart and really think through who you are and how you are and which one of these relates to you the most. We do have a spiritual gifts test that goes along with the ministry gifts. If you're interested in that, you can email me and I'll give you that or I'll send you that in response to your email. And it's very important that we realize we might have a, a leaning towards one or two of these different gifts, but there's always gonna be a dominant or a primary. And some of us might actually discover that God has truly called us to be an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, or a pastor teacher. It's very important as we go through this to be thinking about what God has given us. Now, the first ministry gift that Paul mentions here is of course the apostle. Now, one of the words I wanna use for what the apostles do is the apostles govern. I'm gonna have a G word for every single gift that we're gonna use here in the five-fold ministry gift. So apostles govern. Um, and there's a definition of what an apostle is. You'll, you might have this on your notes. Uh, an apostle is one who is sent with a special commission, one who is set apart, sent forth, or sent on a mission. An apostle is also a divinely appointed representative a delegate, an ambassador, or a messenger. Now, some of these are specific and some of these are general, but this is an actual definition of an apostle. Some of the references in the Bible would be Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, and you'll notice where it talks about Jesus was the first apostle. We've already said that Jesus was entirely and in totality all of these gifts. So he was the first apostle. He was sent from heaven to earth as an apostle to birth and govern the church that he was about to start. It also says in Luke 6, 13, that Jesus called 12 apostles. These are the direct disciples, the, the direct apostles of Jesus in Luke 6, 13. He calls them to be his sent ones, his special messengers, his set apart 12. And we also see in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, Romans 16, 7, that there were other apostles in the New Testament. There's some theology and doctrine that would suggest that there are no apostles today. Well, we know that's not true, number one, because there were other apostles other than the 12. Obviously, there were 12, Judas, uh, Judas killed himself, and they appointed in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, a man named Matthias as the 12th man. And so we have also, later on, Paul would refer to, not only in this passage, he's referring to apostles, but he would refer to apostles later in the end of Corinthians and so on. And so we know that there were apostles, they just were different than the direct apostles. And the difference would be this, that the direct disciples or apostles of Jesus were witness to his baptism and they were also witness to his resurrection. They were eyewitnesses. Those who are apostles after the direct disciples or apostles of Jesus, those apostles have a similar calling, but not necessarily in the same way. In other words, they were not eyewitnesses to his resurrection or his baptism, 
to the life and ministry of Jesus, but they are representatives and they are witnesses to the resurrection power. And that's what we can be today as well. And so, yes, there are, there's a difference between the apostles that were directly called and commissioned by Jesus in his time and the ones that we would call apostles today. But we see them continue on in, uh, in the story that we have in Scripture. Are there apostles today? Yes, there are. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 that we just read here, I believe indicates that very clearly. It says, until we all reach unity of the faith. Until we all reach unity of the faith. That has not happened yet. It is soon in coming. Come Lord Jesus. But we still need the apostolic ministry. We still need men and women called of God, anointed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of Jesus, as an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. We still need all of the works of God, all of the ministries of Jesus in and among us to complete the mission that he has commissioned us to be a part of. Now, the function of an apostle is very important to note. The first function that I see, that I see from scripture is that apostles pioneer. Apostles pioneer. They start new kingdom ventures, churches, ministries, businesses. I don't believe an apostle in their starting of New Kingdom Ventures is just restrictive to an institutionalized type of church. I believe that they are all about new ventures and sometimes they're very entrepreneurial. I didn't say that right, but you understand what I'm saying. They're entrepreneurs, and so they're, they're always thinking about conquering the next hill. They're always thinking about going over the next mountain. They're not like settlers. Settlers are great with the camp. They're great with what's going on here. They, hey, why would we change what we have? We've got a good thing going. Apostles are pioneers. They're always thinking about scaling the next walls or overcoming the next height that we have to come to. And so they really are um, that way. So they're pioneers. They're also builders. Apostles provide wide-range leadership to the church. So they have vision and strategy. They're thinking about expansion. They're not thinking about just pres preservation. They always are thinking about expansion. They want to push out the tent pegs so that the kingdom can advance and we can go farther than we've ever gone, reach higher than we've ever reached. These are, this is the apostolic ministry, is the whole focus of advancing the kingdom of God. They keep us moving forward with our eyes on Jesus Christ. They also appoint Apostles appoint others to lead and minister. This is about discipleship and transferring ministry. They're thinking about raising up. I would also tell you that they're very fatherly. I mean, I realize that some could be women, but there's like a father-mother aspect to the apostleship gift that Jesus has given us. And so you'll see them fathering people, raising them up, not, not just overseeing, but they want to father people to the point where those are running at high capacity and maximizing what God has given them. That truly is in the heart of an apostle, not necessarily just an apostle, but we see this is true from scripture and how God calls people to walk with him and fulfill this ministry. This is the apostolic ministry. The second ministry gift that Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter, chapter four is of course called the prophet. Now the G word that I'm gonna to give to the prophet is the prophet's guide. The apostles govern and the prophets guide. The definition of a prophet is a spokesman, a speaker, a special messenger, one who speaks under divine inspiration. They are also a seer in the Old Testament, one who sees visions from God. They behold the vision of the Lord. They are also a watchman, one who guards and keeps watch, that has kind of a special discernment and can see things that others can't see. Therefore, they will say what others are not able to say. And they're outlookers, watchmen, they keep watch, they stay on guard because God gives them insight and sight 
about what is happening and what is going on. And we see this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I would tell you that there is a shift from Old Testament prophet to New Testament prophet. Obviously, some of the Old Testament prophets wrote scripture. So New Testament prophets are not gonna write scripture. We have the scripture today, what God wanted us to have. In the Old Testament, they were mediators between God and man, much like a king, much like a priest. Prophets were special messengers who had the word of the Lord for the people of God. And so they would speak what God was speaking. And obviously they would write scripture under divine inspiration as well. And so there was, it was very rigid that they had to be 100% accurate. Now we don't want New Testament prophet, prophets to have inaccuracies, but the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant prophets, one of them is that they move from mediator to mentor. As Jesus, or Paul talks about the calling of Christ as a New Testament prophet is to mentor people in hearing the voice of God and prophesy. We are, they are equipping the body for the works of service. What does a prophet equip the people to do? A prophet would equip the people of God for the work of prophesying, to hear the voice of God because we all have the Spirit of God and to say what God is saying. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. And so we look at Old Testament prophets and we see that they were specially anointed, 1 Samuel 22, 5, 2 Kings 6, 11. We also see in the Bible that there are false prophets, those who are motivated by demonic spirits to lead the people of God astray. Now it's important, I went to a church for some time where people would say that if a prophet or someone claiming to be a prophet or there was the assumption that they were a prophet, if they ever made a mistake in their prophecy that they really didn't have a gift of God and somehow they were a false prophet. Well, there's a difference between a false prophet and a false word. And this is something that I get into in one of our later classes called the prophetic ministry. So you wanna look forward to that. But there is a difference between a false prophet and a false word. And you'll wanna make that distinction. False prophets are motivated by demonic spirits. They are not under the inspiration of the spirit of God. Uh, they are not somehow Christians or um, necessarily, uh, they're not Christians, they're not regenerated people. Their motivation is to lead peop the people of God astray. False prophets are not Christians who made a mistake. That's, that's not what a false prophet is. There are also New Testament prophets. We see Agabus in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. We see Silas also. In Acts chapter 13, when the Apostle Paul was commissioned on his first missionary journey, it opens up by saying that there were prophets and teachers in Antioch. And as they were fasting and praying and waiting on the Lord, it says the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work for which I have called them. Well, how did the Holy Spirit speak? It just said that there were prophets and teachers there. We believe that it was a prophet who spoke the word of the Lord in the moment in which Paul and his companion were commissioned in an apostolic ministry. And so we see New Testament prophets. And of course, we believe New Testament prophets are here today as well, but there has been a shift between Old Covenant prophet and New Covenant prophet, one of which, of course, is the mediator between God and man. Now, according to Scripture, the only mediator between God and man is Christ Jesus. And now we, have, we all have the Holy Spirit. The function of a prophet is something like this. One of the things they do, of course, is they equip. They equip. They equip the church to hear the voice of God. Why? Because we all have the Holy Spirit. According to, uh, to Acts chapter 2, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that's both Jew and Gentile, and they shall prophesy. It says it two times, that those who receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which by definition is those that call in the name of the Lord, 
they will prophesy. Sons and daughters, sons, young men will see visions, old men will dream dreams, and even on my bondservants, both male and female, they shall prophesy. This is an amazing thing at the genesis of the church, or at least the Jewish church, the prophecy of Joel chapter 2 is recalled in Acts chapter 2 as Peter is explaining what is happening on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. He is saying this is that. The Holy Spirit is being poured out on random people, not just prophet, priest, and king, and they shall prophesy. One of the gifts that, uh, or one of the th- functions of a prophet is to help the people of God learn how to hear God and prophesy. They equip. The second thing that they do is they foretell. They speak about things before they actually happen. Now we see this, Agabus does it twice. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, uh, Agabus prophesies about something before it happens. So that is one function of a prophet. They will hear God say something about an event to come, or they will see a vision about something that will take place, or a dream, and they will speak about it or prophesy that which will take place. They foretell. Another thing that they do is foretell. Foretell and foretell are not the same thing. Uh, not the same thing. Sorry, foretell means that they will share with others what God is saying right now. This is what I would say: is they speak forth the present priorities of God. They're able to discern and absorb what the word of the Lord is right here, right now, for the people that they are around. And so they foretell. They speak forth the present priorities. Of God. They also strengthen. They speak with conviction. They build foundation in the church. We see this in Acts chapter 15, verse 32. I believe this is the same verse where it says that the brothers who came to a specific location, they strengthen the believers with a lengthy message. That's like my life's verse. I like to think that I come somewhere and I strengthen people with a lengthy message, or at least it gives me an excuse to preach a very long time. That's what prophets do is they strengthen with a lengthy message. They also discern. They help to determine what is really from God and what is not. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29 through 33 where 1 Corinthians is describing, in in chapter 14, describing the prophetic gift, how the prophetic gift should function in a church gathering. And one of the gifts of prophet is to listen to prophecies that are given, listen to teachings that are given, and to determine and discern whether or not what's being taught or spoken is truly from God. You can imagine that this gift was very fundamental in the early church when they didn't have the manuscripts like we do in the canon of Scripture. We have the 66 books compiled together in one book called the Bible. Well, they didn't have that. And so these letters were being written during those times. Not everybody had a gospel narrative. They were being told what, what, what we call the apostles' doctrine. And that was being spread around. And so the Apostle Paul was writing letters to the churches to remind them of the doctrine with which he would establish a church. And so they really had to have prophets uh, in increasing measure that were accurate and discerning to know whether or not what somebody was saying was from God. We still need that today because there's a lot of false doctrine theology that floats around from church to church, from region to region, nation to nation, and we need prophets to discern what is from God and what is not. So this is a very, very vital thing that prophets do and still do today. That's the function of a prophet. Now the next gift, a ministry gift, that we see Jesus mentions in Ephesians 4 is the evangelist. The definition of an evangelist, first I want to tell you the G word, is that they gather. Remember, apostles govern, prophets guide, and apostles, or evangelists gather. 
And the definition of an evangelist is they are a messenger of good news, one who brought the news of a military victory. Now think about that. That was sort of the Greek word that was used behind the word evangelist whenever it was used outside of a Christian context. An evangelist was one who would bring the news of a military victory. And that really is what an evangelist does today, that Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And an evangelist is telling the good news of Jesus Christ and that people can have forgiveness of their sins and they can be reborn experiencing new life where they are reconciled with God as their father and one another as their brothers and sisters and live with God forever having eternal life. There is victory over our sin. There is victory over death. There is victory over the devil. And so those that are evangelists are bringers of the good news of Jesus Christ, which is in fact a spiritual victory that we rejoice in. That's the definition of an evangelist. They gather some references in the Bible to an evangelist is, of course, Jesus was an evangelist. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he comes preaching the kingdom of God and says, believe the good news. Jesus is the evangelist and every evangelist would take their cues from Jesus Christ. A second reference that we see in scripture is where Philip was mentioned as an evangelist in Acts chapter 21 verse 8. There's also references prior to that as well, but it defines Philip as an evangelist. He begins to expand the message of the gospel of Jesus into Samaria. I believe it is in Acts chapter 8. And he's an evangelist who brings the good news of Jesus Christ um, to the Samaritan village. We also see how Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He doesn't say you are an evangelist. He says, do the work of an evangelist. We need you to evangelize. So sometimes people get uh, confused about the gift of evangelism. There really is no gift of evangelism in the Bible. There's a gift of an evangelist. And this is a governmental gift that is given to the body of Christ. Some are actually appointed evangelists in the body. The rest of us are called to do the work of an evangelist. How do we learn to do the work of, of an evangelist? We do that by listening to an evangelist. An evangelist, one of their functions is to equip the body of Christ. Just as we've talked about that apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, is called to equip the body of Christ for works of service until we all attain unity in the faith. That's one of their functions. But here's some of the other functions that an evangelist has. And the first is that they share the gospel pretty much everywhere that they go, church, store, job, home, wherever. It doesn't matter where they are. Everybody has a target on their back. An evangelist can't help but share the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere that they go. They're, they not only carry a message, they are a messenger. Their life demonstrates to all of us who don't have the evangelist gift what it looks like to share the gospel. And so they have to be, you know, coach players. They're not just coaches, but they're also players. They have to be in the game and they also are coaching the game. So their life is a demonstration of what it looks like to share the gospel of Jesus. So they're always sharing the gospel that is of uttermost importance to them. They can't imagine that anybody would do anything else in the kingdom except share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they do that all the time. The second function that the evangelist typically has is they provoke and equip the church to share the gospel everywhere they go. And this is why their life is so important and vital to us. And they're going to provoke the church. They're going to make sure that the church doesn't forget we're on mission with Jesus to share the gospel and to do the work of an evangelist. They're going to do that. And we need them in the church 
to make sure that we stay on mission with Jesus and not just kind of hole up and attend to our morality, but that we're on mission and we're carrying the message of the gospel. Another function that they have is they are usually good communicators. I call them people magnets. Uh, they can filter relationships through their passion. And in other words, they can tend to not build as good of relationships as others. And so um, they're seen to kind of be that way. And uh, really what it is, is they're just so fired up about the gospel. They're so fired up about sharing the good news of Jesus that they can tend to kind of allow relationships to go to the side, which would be to their detriment. But, um, but it is something that we need to understand about evangelists. They are impassioned with the gospel. And it's just always, always, always on their mind. And we respect that in the body of Christ because we need to draw from the anointing that's, that's on their life. The fourth gift that Paul mentions here, which we see in Ephesians chapter four, is the pastor. Now the G word that I wanna use is they guard, the pastor's guard. Apostles govern, prophets guide, the evangelist gathers, and the pastor guards. A definition of a pastor is they are a shepherd, they are a guide, they are an overseer, one who takes responsibility for the spiritual well-being of others. They do this not only on a micro level, just one-to-one, -one, but a pastor also does that on a macro level, that as many as God will give them, they will shepherd. They're always thinking about the sheep, so to speak, the people. They're always thinking about what's best for them and how they can help them and how they can mend their wounds and these kinds of things. We see the references in the Bible to the pastor. There are not many references specifically to a pastor, but there are some. And obviously we see Jesus himself is referred to as the shepherd in John chapter 10. He says, I am the shepherd and you are the sheep. So Jesus is the example of what it means to be a true shepherd. And everybody that has the calling of a pastor should be looking at the example of Jesus of what it means to be a pastor and how they function. The second reference that we can see in scripture is Paul referred to pastors as overseers in the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Philippians 1, 1 and 1 Timothy 3, 1. He's giving some instructions to those that desire to be a pastor or an overseer. Now that, that terminology, overseer, pastor, is very synonymous. So when you see the term overseer, you can, you can see that it's inter interchangeable with the terms shepherd, pastor, overseer. It's the same thing. And so we see that reference by Paul in giving qualifications for those that desire to this office. Now here are some of the functions of a pastor. The first is that they lead. God usually calls pastors to lead the church, not only individually, but as a whole. So they lead, and this is something they're called to. The second is they teach. Part of their caring for people is that they desire for people to know and walk in the truth. And so they teach, and they typically teach well. They wanna build up people through the word of God, through the truth of God, so they're teachers. They also seek, pastors seek people out, and they go after people. They're initiators. They're always thinking about people. People are always on their minds. And so they're typically not people that set back. They're usually those that are seeking out people, usually wanting to know how they're doing and what's going on in their life, how they can connect them to the next thing. And so they're good initiators. They also counsel. Pastors help navigate people through troubled waters, giving sound advice, sound biblical counsel. This is something that they very much care about because they want to help people live where God has called them to live. And so counseling and giving advice and mentoring comes very naturally to the pastor. And finally, they care. 
They just plain care for people in almost every way possible. What can they do to help people in, in the place of life that they're in? How can I help you? How can I help you? How can I help you? They find value in how it is that they, that they bring about helping people in their life. And so they're constantly putting their own emotions and their own life on the shelf in order to consider and care for the people that are right in front of them. This is the calling of a pastor. This is the function of a pastor. And we see this throughout the Bible, but I believe we see this in modern times today. If you know a pastor or if you are a pastor, you find many of these things to be true in your everyday life. It's just the way that you function. It's the way God has wired you to be. Now, the final, the fifth and final gift that we see Jesus, uh, well, we see Paul reference about what Jesus gives is a teacher. Now, the G word that I want to use for what teachers are is they ground. You remember apostles govern. You're going to remember all these by the time I'm done. Apostles govern, prophets guide, evangelists gather, and pastors guard, but the teachers ground. And what I mean is they ground people in the truth, in the principles of the Bible. Now, this is a definition for the teacher. They're one who provides practical instruction for earthly or kingdom living with biblical truth. Teachers are not just people that are good at giving information. They're people who want to ground folks in the truth. And so they're constantly thinking about precept upon precept, line upon line, grounding people in biblical reality through practical instruction. Some of the references to teachers in the Bible is first in Luke chapter 4, verse 32. We see Jesus was a teacher. It says that he taught with authority, not as like the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the scribes which meant that when he taught, there was also spiritual authority that was attached to what he said. He wasn't just a person with words. He was a person that carried substance with him as he spoke. And this is really a challenge for the teachers is that you can't just be good at telling people what things are. You have to have a sense of substance. And that's what God will add to you or give to you is authority. Jesus taught with authority. There were also, in Luke 5, 17, there were many teachers of the law. So we see that kind of old covenant principle. They were referred to as teachers of the law. So it's just another reference to teachers, not necessarily what Paul's talking about here, but just want to throw that at you. There were also, in the early church, there were identified teachers. Acts chapter 13 opens up, as I've already said, that Paul and his companion, they're fasting and praying before the Lord, before they go on their first missionary journey. And it says that at Antioch, there were many prophets and teachers there. This means that there were people that were identified as teachers. And I think we could do that today as well. We see that from scripture. There are also false teachers. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 references that there were false teachers. Just like there were false prophets, there were also false teachers. And we'll see that that is true for us today as well. There are also uh, references in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We're all meant to teach in some capacity. We may not all have the calling of a teacher, but we're all meant to teach. And that's why he says in the Great Commission, Jesus says to his first disciples, which carries out to all of his disciples, teach them, future disciples, to obey what I've commanded you. I want you to teach them, not just to know it, but I want you to teach them to obey it. So it's a little bit different when you teach people to know something versus teaching them to do it. Jesus says, teach them to obey. So all of us, regardless of our calling and gifting, are called to teach people at some level. 
Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 would reference this kind of idea as well. And we also see a reference in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that the Bible is the basis for all teaching. So when we think about those that are called to teach, it's not just teach information about anything in life. It's that they're teaching spiritual truths and grounding those principles into people's lives. And the Bible is the basis. That's where it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, instruction, reproof, training, instruction in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God would be equipped for every good work. And so we know that the Bible is the basis for our teaching and really the calling of a teacher. Now here's some of the functions of a teacher. A teacher helps us to differentiate from right and wrong. This is Ezekiel 22:26, sort of a reference to that which a teacher will do. They, they help to discern and distinguish while they teach principally about who God is and what God has called us to know and do. They will help us to discern between right and wrong. A second thing that the teachers do in terms of a function is they instruct the body in obedient action. I just mentioned the Great Commission, teach them to obey. That's what a teacher wants people to do. They want to ground them in principles so that what comes out of their life is obedient action. A third function of a teacher is that they lay out parameters for spiritual life. This was like a long-term investment. A teachers realize that what they're doing is not just trying to give people quick encouragement. They're trying to instruct them for spiritual living that goes the distance. And you see this, if you know anybody that's called to be a teacher or you yourself are called to be a teacher, you know this about yourself, that you want people to go the distance. So when you invest into them, regardless of what you're teaching them, you want this to be a long-term investment. You're not looking just for quick results. You realize that you're providing guardrails on the path of life so that people won't fall into either ditch on the side of the road. They just keep going on the path of life. That's what teaching is all about. It's about putting guardrails on both sides so that people don't fall into ditches and continue on their journey as they walk with Jesus. And that another function is that teachers equip parents to raise their kids in the Lord. We see kind of a reference in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 7, but I actually believe when you think about teachers are equipping the body for works of service until we all attain unity. One of the things that's very clear that they're going to want to help parents do is to raise their children in the Lord. They're going to teach parents to teach their kids. Teachers are good at helping equip us to teach others. That's a function, obviously, of what they're called to do. And what better way for us to start that or what better environment for us to, to do that than our homes? So as parents, we want to learn from and glean from teachers. That's why today we have podcasts and books. I myself write books because I want people to learn and to know. I don't want people just to get encouraged. I want to teach instruction so that there are principles that we can live by and we can stand on. Now, these are the gifts that we call ministry gifts in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul references. Jesus has given these gifts to men that he might make gifts of men in turn to the body of Christ. Some people have been given this kind of mantle or this governmental gift of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. The rest of us, even if we don't have one of these gifts, it doesn't mean that we're not spiritually gifted. It just means that we have a leaning in one of these arenas, one of these areas. And so we're trying to identify which one that is. If you say, well, Ben, I, I feel like I have two or three of these. Which one is your highest? 
That's what you're looking for. Which one is your highest? And when you discover that, learn as much as you can about that gift. If it's profit, read what you can, study what you can, look as many scriptures up as you can, and really go and learn from somebody that has that calling. If they don't identify or self-identify as a prophet or apostle or whatever, if you can identify them as that, take them out to coffee, chase them down, do whatever you got to do, email them, get a hold of them, and spend some time with them so that you can learn and glean from them because you believe that's what God has called you to do or to be as well. And this is important in our discipleship journey that we not only learn from just the Word, but we also learn by the Spirit from those in the body of Christ that are ahead of us. In Jesus' name. Here's some principles for these ministry gifts before we close our session today. And some of the principles that we find from Ephesians chapter 4, uh, in specifically through, as we talked about, verse 1 through, I believe it is, uh, 16, some specific principles that I think will help us in not only determining what gift we have, but understanding the context of these ministry gifts. The first principle is the body is equipped to serve. One of the purposes of these gifts is to equip the body for service. That's why Jesus gave us these gifts. He said specifically to his disciples, it is better that I go that the Holy Spirit come. And in these verses in Ephesians, he says that he ascended and as he ascended, he gave gifts to men. He imparted the grace, the fullness of the grace that was on his life as one, he imparted that grace onto many. And so as we assemble as the church of God together, we make up together the fullness of what Jesus had singularly. We do that together as we possess all that Jesus um, intends for us to have. We need one another. We work uh, interdependently as we function uh, together to advance the kingdom of God. And so the purpose, one of the main purposes for us having these gifts is that we're equipped to serve. And you could see how important that is if in the body of Christ we only see like the pastor, but we never see the apostle, or we see the prophet, but we never see the evangelist, or we see the teacher, but we don't have pastors. It's, it's important that we pray for and really learn about and extend ourselves towards those that have all of these different gifts. We want to welcome the fivefold ministry and not just heavily on one. We want to work together because when we do, the body is equipped to serve at maximum capacity. The second principle that I want to share with you from this passage is the body experiences unity in Christ. What does it say? It says that he's given these gifts and these gifts are meant to build up the body of Christ toward works of service until we all experience unity in the faith, which in my mind means that these gifts actually enable us and help us to attain unity in Christ. And I believe as we work together, we see the diversity in the body come together in unity, not conformity, but unity. And as we function together in unity because we need one another, we know that it matures us to look more and more like Jesus together. We're better together. In fact, we're like Jesus together. When we're not together, we're not looking fully like Jesus because none of us possess fully what Jesus has given to his church. He is the head and we are the body. We as a people, not as a person. No lone rangers, nobody's meant to be isolated. We need everybody, we need every gift because when we have that, we attain a unity that looks like the fullness of expression of Jesus Christ. So the body experiences unity in Christ. And the third principle is the body matures and grows. 
This sort of is implied in what I've already said, but it specifically says, until we all attain unity of the faith, it talks about a mature man. We become mature and we grow as every joint is supplied that, that kind of life and what it's needed from the head through the body. We all are supplied with what we need. We all grow with the intention that God has for us as we work together, as we unify, as we come around the purpose of God to advance his kingdom. We grow together, we mature together. These gifts help us to do that. That's why it's mentioned in this context. The fourth principle is the body stays balanced. What does he go on to talk about? Like, as this begins to happen, as we attain unity of the faith, as we grow together, which every joint receives its supplies, they're connected, he goes on to say, and then we won't, we won't be swayed or persuaded by every wind of teaching, by every wind and wave of teaching that knocks people around and, and really diverts the plan and the purpose of God within the community of, of the believers that this no longer happens as these gifts express themselves and mature and equip the body of Christ as false teaching comes along and tries to divert us and what we're doing and what we're called to. We realize because of the maturity that we have and the connectedness that we have in the body, as a result of these gifts flowing together, we're not persuaded by false teaching. We're not moved around. We stay balanced. We stay focused. We stay doing what we're supposed to do, going where we're supposed to go, because we have what we're supposed to have. It's so important that we see this, the body stays balanced. And number five, and finally, we see that every member of the body has a place. Now, maybe not everybody, as I said, has a governmental mantle type gift, but all of us have a leaning in one of these gifts. And you can discover that. The first way you do that is you ask God to show you what he's given you. The second way you do that is ask people around you what do you feel like I'm called to? What gift do you feel like God has given me? What have you seen in my life? And what have you watched grow in me? Ask somebody else before you ask yourself. Sometimes we desire something and that's not wrong, but it may not be how God has designed us. What we desire isn't always what we've been designed in. And we can desire gifts and that's not, again, not wrong. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. But we wanna know what God has maybe hardwired into us. So ask other people what they see and what they've seen grow. And the third way is I would learn as much as I can about spiritual gifts in, in a way in which you're pursuing God so that he would use you in the way that he's designed you. Ask him, Lord, show me, but also learn more and more about these gifts while you're asking him so that you really are giving the Holy Spirit something to work with. This is what I would tell you to do if you wanna grow. Also, you can email me and I'll send you a spiritual gifts test that's according to Ephesians chapter four. We have another one that works with, I believe, Romans chapter 12. And I'll talk to you about that in our later lessons. But for now, I wanna pray for you that God would open our mind and our heart so that we could experience what he has for us and really begin to grow and be useful in his kingdom with what he fully intends in giving us these gifts. Father, I just thank you right now for the gifts that you have given to your church. And Lord, we wanna receive fully and completely what you have for us. And I pray that all of those that are watching this teaching, that are, that are seeking you and asking God, what have you given me and how can I grow? And I pray for revelation for everyone. Lord, I ask that you would show us, that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that you would also help us to understand what that is. Maybe we know we're called to be a prophet, but we don't know what that looks like. Or maybe we, we have a hesitancy towards that. I pray that you would break the barriers that stand between us 
and where you have called us. I ask that, Lord, you would help us to understand, giving us revelation and wisdom and knowledge. And then also, Lord, I pray that you would give us the will to do. Help us to employ the gift that you've given to us, that we would become useful in helping your body become who you've designed us to be. And we need each other, Lord, and we thank you for giving these different kinds of gifts to your church so that we could grow up together and mature and express the fullness of Jesus in the world around us. We love you. We ask you to help us, teach us, and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you guys. I look forward to our next lesson together. And I will build my